pleasure of being interviewed by Rob Oliver on his show Perspectives on Healthcare. Rob and I discussed neurotherapy's role in healthcare and specifically we talked about how comprehensive care starts with a thorough history and establishing a baseline that quality healthcare means having the humility to acknowledge that the treatment protocol might need to be adjusted. And lastly, that neurostimulation today is very different from the old-fashioned shock therapy that some people still confuse it with. So I highly recommend listening to that interview. I will put a link to it in the show notes. All right, on the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Rod Francis. Rod is faculty head and creator of the Emergent Coach Training Program and a founding member of InterActualizer. Following a decade designing and leading professional coach training programs in Europe and the USA, Rod is actively speaking, writing, coaching, and leading workshops and retreats across the globe, working with the central themes of the advancement of human organizational and social development and embodied leadership. So Rod, really excited to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. Great to be here with you. So you grew up in Australia. Tell me a little about just what your upbringing was like. Yeah, gosh, uh, that goes back a little while now. I, I was born in a place called Broken Hill, which is right in the middle of Australia, that sort of red desert kind of area. But uh, when I was very young, I, I moved up to the northeastern tropics of Australia. So I, I spent a lot of my early childhood growing up there. I just remember really free and easy childhood. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when our, our household did not have a TV, you know, like no households around us had a TV. My dad ran uh, an electrical business and, and uh, was building his way up the kind of greasy pole, I guess. Um, and, that, and that's where we were. And their business was electrics, uh, electrical uh, equipment. Um, and so I, I just remember a lot of, you know, opportunities to, to um, be outside and play and, and uh, you know, not be in front of a TV set or a device or anything, anything like that. So I had a pretty great childhood there. And then, uh, you know, as I grew up, I, I was a I had a lot of opportunities. You know, Australia was a great country to grow up in the time I did. It, uh, it probably still is. I haven't lived there for a long time. Um, and I, but I always felt a little confused. You know, I was like a lot of young men um, who were of the sort of social milieu, the social kind of group that I was part of. And um, parents had done fairly well. I was put into private school and the school was, um, really setting young men up for careers in business, which was pretty well the trajectory that was a lot of people were doing uh, of my kind of cultural group and my social group. And yet I felt outside of that, you know, I, I really didn't felt I fit with that model. I, I just knew there was something else I wanted to do in the world. And I just had no idea what that was. And none of the people around me at that point um, could really point me in that direction as well. Um, and I, I, I kind of dropped out a little bit, actually, you know, I could, I could see there was, there were a lot of cultural movements going on at the time. Australia had just got out of the, well, several few years before I, that, that happened, but Australia got out of uh, the war in Vietnam and, you know, there were a lot of sort of peace movements and, kind of hippie movements going on and all that kind of stuff. And it was really fascinating to me, but I could see there were a lot of hooks that weren't <laughs> going to take me in great places. Um, so I relocated from where I was in Brisbane down to Sydney and I, I realized I wanted to pursue for performing arts. That was actually something that I, I, it wasn't part of what my parents understood as a job. You know, no one kind of thought you could do that as a job. Um, I had the good fortune to have a, an older brother who'd done a similar thing a few years before. And um, he was a very talented musician. And he said, you know, I'm going to go and be a musician. And 
again, my parents went, that's not a job. <laughs> so, um, so that was a lot of my early life. And then I, I went down and I, I started training in performing arts. I, I set up my own little companies. I was, you know, I did pretty well. I was <clears throat> running, uh, working for the University of New South Wales running programs. I, I set up a, a small circus. I, I used, I was very interested in circus skills and physical skills and, um, and but the the direction I really got taken in was I, I um, was doing a lot of dance, which was kind of unusual for men of my age or men in that of that age in that in in that country at the time. And um, and uh, what happened was I I auditioned and got accepted into the National Ballet School in in Australia, the Australian Ballet School, and that really helped to kind of formulate a career for me from there. You know, I got trained at that level. Um, clearly I, I guess I had some talent and, um, and that really in a sense chose the direction for me. And it was also something that gave me my first taste of what I call meaning and purpose, you know, something that I didn't care if I got a million bucks or no, or no bucks, you know, when I, it was just doing something that I had so much passion for and so much love for and still do. So that was ballet. You found that that passion yeah yeah I, I you know in a sense I, I i will often say that i it seemed like it found me rather than i found it sometimes but yeah that found this incredible passion for doing something that was meaningful that fulfilled you and along this this route were you starting to get interested in like personal development sort of stuff or did that come later yeah no, that was that that was pretty well from my, I guess possibly my late teens, but certainly my very early twenties. And I, I had a lot of friends who were very interested in all of that. You know, some of it was was a little out there. Um, you know, uh, I had great friends who were yoga teachers. I particularly my closest friend at the time was a yoga teacher, and that's where I got taught. I first introduced to meditation. You know, a long time ago. This is over forty years ago now. Um, and uh, and so there, there was this sparking this interest in in if I could develop how I was as a person, that um, that there was a possibility of creating something better, something more fulfilling in my life. You know, so yeah, it was very much just focused on the self. And when did you start realizing that you had a passion for for wanting to actually work with other people with coaching? Yeah, that was that took a little while actually because I my my dance career, I, I wouldn't say it finished. I did actually make a conscious decision um, to move away from that. Uh, there are a couple of really kind of remarkable circumstances that happened in my life in my early thirties. And but you know, as a dancer, you're a professional athlete, and you you do though. People, some people do perform. I've, I've got a friend who still performs in his you know, mid to late fifties at the moment, but he's had two, two new hips, you know, and, and a knee done. And, you know, there's your body's paying the price. And I remember sort of getting into my thirties and, and seeing particularly when I was auditioning um, and I'd see dudes who were like 10 years older than me in the audition. And it looked like it was hard work. You know, this wasn't easy that the new the new crop was coming through, and actually, even in my thirties, there were new kids coming through who were just amazing. So I kind of thought, well, maybe I better explore something else here. And I did. I, I had a really remarkable. Um, I've been traveling the world a fair bit at that point already because I, I was, you know, kind of hoofing it about and and taking my shoes wherever that wherever the gigs were. Um, and that was just a great life. I loved it. I lived in all over Europe. I lived in Japan. I traveled America, you know, toured in America. And, and then I had this extraordinary kind of thing happen where I, uh, I, I, I took, it was a real momentary kind of career, but it took me um, back into, into central Europe, which was um, uh, I got shot for, by some, by a famous photographer um, for some very, for some high fashion magazines at the point. You know, and so I thought, oh, okay, I, I got offered to move back, move to Paris. So, um, so you know, I kind of did that, and I I did that for a year or two, just living in Paris and and Milan, and 
and then London again, um, living a very interesting kind of gilded life, which was quite remarkable. I, you know, kind of ended up in uh, high fashion magazines and uh, TV commercials and that kind of thing. Um, and then I thought I'd better get serious. You know, I went back to college. I was living in London at the time. Uh, I, I then realized I, I maybe want to try and do business. So I set up a company. Um, I got married to someone who was an interior designer and we set up this business. It was design-based business in London. It, it, it actually did really well. You know, we, we, we had a, a, a lot of success. We, we were in national press and we ended up with all the offices and everything and did that for about seven years or so. And there was this point, you know, I was always doing all this other work and trying to kind of do trainings and figure things out. But there was this, I got to this point after about seven years, I never forget, I was driving across London and we'd had a whole lot of projects going on and, and things weren't going great. And, and I just sort of stopped at these lights and looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, is this really what you want to do for the rest of your life? Is it, like, is this it, you know? And I realized the answer was no, I didn't. So it was at that point, I, I really thought I needed some help. That's where, you know, seeking out the, someone like a coach was really good. I, I had always done, I, well, for the several years, I'd done a lot of therapy. And so when I was kind of reevaluating life, I, I, I actually looked at that and I thought, first of all, I thought I, I might want to train as a psychotherapist because I realized there was something about, I needed this feeling of passion, of meaning and purpose of something that was worthy, something that was, that meant something to me and also to others, you know, there was something about doing, doing something good in the world. And, and when I was exploring becoming a therapist, um, there's someone who is a friend of mine, uh, doctor, a guy called Mark Atkinson, he's a medical doctor. And Mark and I were, you know, I, I said, come on, let's go for a walk. And I'll never forget, we're down in this place, beautiful gardens outside south way down in the south just outside of london and his young daughter she was very young then we were walking around and and that was when mark said well you know yeah a therapy but have you thought about training as a coach and i hadn't really you know i kind of i just hadn't occurred and when i looked at the difference between the modalities um much as i really love i've, I've really appreciated the therapists i've worked with and I thought, actually, I think being a coach is a better fit for me. Can you elaborate a little more on, on what you found is the differences, the main differences between, uh, say, psychotherapy versus coaching and, and why you gravitated more towards coaching? Mm. Yeah, I, I, and this is, you know, often a very simplistic rendering that's given to this. Um, but I do think there's something of it that's true as well. And for me, it was my experience that, you know, often what I was going to work with the therapist with was um, the broken pieces of my life, you know, in, is probably the best way I, I could say it, you know, like where, where were the kind of problematic pieces that kept revisiting me in life? You know, like I, I realized I had great parents, but I'd had a really, um, you know, there were things about individuation and separation and so forth and, and messaging that I'd received as a young kid that were, were just revisiting in unhealthy ways later on in my life. I didn't have a lot of trauma, um, but, but, you know, and so I realized that, that there were these things that were being brought into therapeutic relationships that are really wonderful and really necessary. And of course, much deeper traumas, you know, I, I experienced that with um, in relationships I'd been in with with people who had been really profoundly damaged you know as a result of early experiences and and that was the main that was a, certainly the the domain of therapists and great therapy they do an amazing job with a, a lot of this and yet with the coaches um, and certainly the the coach that I I started working with it was very much about so where are you now and and what is it you would like to be you know, what is it do you think needs to be developed? What is it you think needs to be worked on? You know, where do you think you need to go to to help help get that? And 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 I realized it was that, you know, not entirely clear. I don't want to say this is exactly the way it works. This is modalities of therapy that I now realize. 
work very similar to coaching, but it was that training of human optimization, of human potential, of um, of finding the the places where we can live more purposeful and and um, happy and fulfilled lives. Um, that can go from where we are now, you know, this kind of self that we have at the moment, which is existentially challenged because you wouldn't be sitting in front of a coach if you didn't think there was something better possible. And it was going from that, this kind of existentially challenged being to something that we kind of know is better. We might not have the clarity on that just yet, but we might get there with a coach and then let's figure out the journey. And that to me was so exciting. And what are what were some of the the tools and practices that you realized could be really helpful in in sort of helping people answer some of those those really profound questions? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, well, I I had done so many trainings, you know, and I'd I'd certainly done um, become more and more deeply interested over those years when I was initially introduced to, to meditation practices, into Buddhist practices, and I kind of came through a few traditions and ended up very much comfortable in a in one of the traditions, and so there were practices of mindfulness that were clearly um, to me really helpful to the whole container of things. Um, but there was some, you know, what we think of as meditation and mindfulness is it's often that it's something that calms me down. It's something that helps me get away from the bullying mind. And, and yes, that, that's, that's all possible. Um, but also, you know, the practices that, that I've been drawn to are practices that help um, generate deep insight, you know, deep insight about this kind of existential discomfort. That we that we experience and and so that I realized there was something in all of that that was really uh, really helpful. Um, I did a lot of different trainings. Um, gosh, you know, um, uh, just trying to think of. I don't want to call out any names, but you know, there are a lot of names in the kind of big personal development world. I I, I went and explored a lot of their work. It's, it's deeply interesting, um, and. And then I, I also realized that there was something about my old training as a dancer and the physical performer and all of that, that I thought, you know, I, I, there was something really important about the use of body, you know, the way body is in, in um, that's revealing, that's helpful, that, that, that helps us to become more connected um, with well, how am I going to say this? I guess with the self, um, let me wind all this together, I guess, you know, is that what, how it all started to come together for me, you know, that there was something about the body and there was, there's something about meditation and, there were, and mindfulness practices. And there's something about um, being able to ask really great questions and being able to really help, um, help another person um, explore beyond the edges of their current thinking, which is what great coaching skill really helps people do. Um, so I did a lot of different trainings. I did, actually did four different coach training programs um, uh, and had some fantastic teachers. And then I realized that all of these pieces I've spoken about, I thought there's a way that these all fit for me. There's something about the whole business of the body, of these great um, skill sets of coaching, of, of deep questions, um, this and, 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 and heightened capacities of being able to listen, really, really listen, um, and something of the reflective nature, the deep nature of, of um, supporting insight. Um, and so that um, has been something that's been growing in me, but it was in my early coach training practices um, that I realized um, uh, in my early coaching practice, there was something in my early coaching practice about all of this that um, I realized when I, I, I kind of went outside the box a little, when I explored things a little differently with clients, that suddenly I was getting these amazing results. You know, people were not answering just from this level, that they were answering from a level that was deeper down, something that was kind of more felt down, down here. And, um, and that somehow, you know, we, 
we can experience this ourselves when someone might ask you a question, you realize there might be a more immediate response. But if someone says, so what else might be there about that? You know, maybe we can take a moment and just, and there's, there's often another thing that comes, right? We take that moment. And, and it was the kind of magic that was happening in all of that that started to become deeply curious about uh, for me. And once I was invited into um, working on coach training programs, um, it was taking that out of my personal practice with clients and how that might become a coaching model that became really interesting to me. If you're interested in learning to improve your cognition through the use of nutrition, supplementation, nootropics, exercise, and sleep, go ahead and check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com and book a free 15-minute neurohealth coaching consultation to see if neurohealth coaching is for you. In neurohealth coaching, we review your current cognitive status and work with you to improve your cognition through the use of the latest research-backed neuroscientific tips and tools. So the, the component of sort of tapping into that, that felt sense and, and connection to the body, was that something that, that you were consciously aware of at the time as a dancer, or was that something later on as you started coaching that you realized that that was an important piece from, cause you, you had mentioned that mm. sort of the, the power of, you yeah. know, body was something that you realized with dance. Yeah, yeah, it was something that I did recognize, not quite in the way that I now do it and the way that, you know, I've been able to explore as I've, I've gone forward. But I always have like this one example that really always stands out to me where I, I remember I was working with a company and we're at Sydney Opera House. And um, when you're in a ballet, um, they often, in classical ballets, they often have this thing called the overture, you know, in, and the overture is this sort of preamble piece of music that, that you know has all the highlights of all the you know the ballet in there and uh at that stage the curtains are down and the company's always back and you're doing it behind the stage and you stage manager will call something like you know places please ladies and gentlemen or something and you're doing some warm-up and then i got I, i knew where my place was and i got with my i was on with my partner and i was just standing there and suddenly i'm standing there and suddenly the mind goes what's the first step and i and i froze i kind of thought I can't remember. I can't, and if I couldn't remember the first, I couldn't remember any of the steps. And, you know, the music's finishing, the curtain's about to go up. And, and so the panic sets in, you know, this thing that we might even call stage fright, I guess, you know, and we lose our, lose our tail with all of that. And, and I just realised, I just thought, okay, <laughs> I somehow had the insight to realise, I guess I, I'd had some meditation practice. And I thought, look, I'm just going to, I'm just going to take a moment and just breathe with this and stay in my place. And I'm going to let the body do it. I'm just going to trust. And yes, there's a lot of implicit training that had gone on in there, but I just realized that this body knows exactly what it's doing. And sometimes I just got to get this thing out of the way and something better comes. And that right there, is that the same process that you work clients through as they're going through like embodiment practices or is it? different yeah that i mean that was very much about allowing the physical movement of the body i mean sometimes i do i will do that with a client you know because sometimes i might i might just um invite someone to stand up or or just say you know which way is your body wanting to go here or you know what 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 happens with the body when you when you uh when you say that you know um if there was a way of making the body of that shape of that problem how might that be? But it will depend on the client. You know, for some clients, that's not appropriate to really work physically with the body. Some people are very uncomfortable with that, and that's okay. But working with the body and the wisdom of the body, um, to me, has really developed out of many different, you know, ways of working with the body. I knew that there were um, ways of just paying attention, being more present to the body and, the, and the, what's expressing in the felt experience of the body, not just the shape. Um, and as I 
developed my work, I was introduced to some really extraordinary work. I, I had the, I've had the good fortune through my job to meet some great researchers. And there's, um, there's some fantastic, uh, really extraordinary bodies of work around in cognitive science around what they call embodied cognition and embodied intelligence. Um, and uh, one of the pieces of work that was really predated what that field now calls embodied cognition was generated by a guy in the Gosh, it was back in the 1950s, a guy called Eugene Gendlin. And Gendlin was a philosopher and went into um, psycho so psychotherapy practicum run by a man called Carl Rogers, who's someone who actually created person-centered psychotherapy. And, um, and Gendlin was really interested in where does thought come from? Where does creativity come from? You know, what's the, what's the source of the Nile here? You know, we have something as a concept. It comes out and it's language, but where's it coming from? And he realized that this was embodied. He called it experiencing. And he said, there's always something down here when we check in in a certain way. And it's the kind of pre-conceptual, the pre-verbal. And it's, it's sort of body-based, we might say. So uh, he's had a profound effect on, on how I like to work as well. And with my Emerging Coach training program, we, we actually teach what he his his um, protocol you might call it, which is called focusing, amazing technique. Was there any other research or any any real significant books that you read that played a big part in just developing your coaching methodology? Oh, I think there's so many. Um, I I'm deeply curious. Um, about so many things, you know, I'm, I'm curious about story and myth and narrative that, you know, there's all these bodies of belief that, that talk about um, how, you know, we in a sense are just kind of existing stories, you know, like, like who, who, who you are, who I am is really the story of me and the story of what I want and the story of how I am. And in some ways it's a great myth of me in some ways. So I, I like to explore this as well, you know, and when we look at story and those kind of things, we begin to look at language and metaphor and the, the kind of language we use and exist and the impact that has on us as well. So those areas too, you know, the kind of linguistic power of language, you know, or the, the, the power of, of, of language, um, which when we psych circle that into or, or draw that into the world of coaching, we're all about language. We're all about conversation. It's all about really concepts and words. And we have this thing in coaching we call powerful, powerful um, questions, right? So they're just powerful words that we've arranged in a certain way. So there's something about all of that, which I'm deeply curious about as well. And I'm really curious about I'm deeply agnostic and, and very scientific in, in my way, but I've had to learn in some ways to soften that a little and become really curious about what's mysterious for us, what's almost magical for us. And in some ways reconnect with the magic of coaching, the powerful words, these kind of spells, you know, we're not making someone do something with it, but it's a kind of word that suddenly someone goes, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Let me think about that. You know, as though the spell has been broken on them. Something remarkable about all this. So all of these things. Um, one book that had a really profound effect on me. Well, there was one book called um, uh, Presence-Based Coaching, which was written by the late Doug Silsby, who is who was um, a much beloved teacher and mentor and um, and someone I, I really deeply admired. I thought Doug had a really fascinating approach to organizational development and coaching um there's a, a book called um theory you uh systems thinking uh, approach um which talks about presencing and you know these whole reflective modes and that's by a person called otto sharma he's based out of mit and probably one of the other people i, I really um deeply admire is a man called guy claxton who's a professor at King's in uh, London, whose specialty is in learning, but he is a cognitive scientist and um, he, his books on 
um, the body and the body's place in change and development is uh, was absolutely seminal uh, reading for me. Going back to one thing you said about about stories, I'm I'm wondering how intricately tied into the ego that is, as far as like ah. what what we're the self talk and how we sort right. of describe or how we tell ourselves the stories about our life and come up with this concept of right. of self and yeah. how so how does that how can that I guess both positively but I'm assuming oftentimes maybe negatively impact. Mm -hmm. someone's way of being in the world yeah yeah that's a great question and i can feel two answers coming up here so i might respond in sort of a little bit in two ways and you know one instantly i'm, I'm kind of i was reminded of this these versions of self from a, a neuroscientist called antonio damasio who i i really just think is amazing uh, he and his wife have run a lab over in the west coast for many years exploring consciousness and self you know and um, and he talks about the autobiographical self. You know, there's a sort of primary self and then this autobiographical self. And the autobiographical self is really the stories, right? You know, there's just, this is the thing. It's the, like when I was five, I did this, blah, 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 all of that. Next year, I hope to be, you know. <laughs> and so there's that aspect about how we actually create a self out of the story that, that's here. And then there's this other part. The other thing that came up, which I also really think is curious, it comes from the work of Martin Seligman, the, the former president of the American Psychological Association, one of the kind of parents of um, this modern field called positive psychology. And Seligman would, would talk about things, he would call it attributional style. You know, so, so the way we view our life and the experiences in it, is this the way we attribute, the way we tell the story about it? And we all know that, don't we? You know, that, that say we, you know, we, we walk away from a situation that was charged and difficult and we kind of, oh, that person, ooh, terrible. You know, what, what? I'm never going to go near that. And then suddenly we get another piece of information about it and we might go, oh, you know, I, I really didn't like what they did, but I, I have some understanding about that. So we can attribute differently. We can tell a different story. We can live a different story about all of this. You know, the, 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 um, it's a, so another person I really admire is a man called George Lakoff, who's a philosopher and linguist at Buckley University, who has written some amazing books on the body and language and, you know, the embodied nature of language. And, you know, he, he talks about how even metaphors you know, how we can have just a metaphor, like so just a, 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 you know, a tiny story in a sense, you know, in a couple of words, that that can, can, can completely change someone's um, reality simply in having a different metaphor. Kind of remarkable, isn't it? Stories Indeed. give us a different world. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the, the things that happened in my life that I think helped illustrate or, or show me the importance of like the stories and, and sort of my self-concept was uh, right after college, I ended up getting, well, before I even graduated, I signed a contract at sort of like my dream job. And I got so wrapped up in like that, that became like my identity, right? right. And then uh, a few months into that, I randomly ended up getting laid off uh, just because it was a startup company and, you know, just random you know, budget cuts needed to happen, but it was like my entire world fell apart right? because it was like my, my confidence, my everything I was, I, that became who I was yeah. rather than just like right. what I did, because I noticed, you know, everyone around me giving such, you know, positive feedback whenever I, you know, said like that I worked at this cool, this cool place. So I just thought that was so interesting because it was mm. like nothing, you know, obviously I, I needed to find another job, mm. but, but the more significant like impact to like sort of my, my mental state was like realizing mm. that, wow, like this is this one little thing has, has mm. disturbed my entire identity. Cause, mm -hmm. cause it was so wrapped around this one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I even find that with, if you think about the way in English we use, I am, you know, I am Rod, I am a this, 
you know, I am that, um, I'm feeling this, you know, I'm feeling really angry about this. And, you know, when we think about what that word, you know, the am, the be, the to be in there, it, you know, it's somehow suddenly the self is that. And, and it can be, you know, one thing I really explore a lot, particularly when I hear people introducing themselves is really, I, I will say, you know, my name is Rod. Because it is, someone gave me a name, you know, many years ago. And, you know, one of the things I do, you know, I've just come off running a, a, a five-day retreat for, for coaches and a developmental retreat. And one of the first things we do is we get people, we get the, we do, do this all in nature and we get, get the natural world to rename them. So they have another identity to play with, you know, and you start to explore then what is that self and all these different kinds of selves. Very interesting to do. And these are all about stories of me again, right? Language of me. So, so once we sort of have this awareness of, of how stories are impacting us and, and what we tell ourselves, how do we go about then? So, so we have that awareness. What do we then do as far as to kind of consciously or subconsciously mm. start to rewrite maybe some of those mm. unhealthy scripts? Mm, yeah. Well, you know, in some ways we're talking about how coaching works here as well. You know, that we, one of the first things we do as coaches, if, or, you know, what professional coaching generally trains people do is to understand the landscape of where it is. You know, what does the world look like here? How is this world? And so much of what coaching is, is what's beyond that land or what might another land look like? How, how else might we, we talk about this? So, so that's really the simple movement that would initially, you know, there'd be lots of ways that we might do that. But, you know, what's another story we might tell here? You know, if we were standing on a mountaintop looking at this, how, how might that look now? You know, what other different stories would you tell? So this is, you know, one thing we talk about different perspectives. Can we walk in some other shoes, stand in another spot? There's a little exercise, and this is, I, I didn't invent this, but it, it can be a really um, <clears throat> powerful little tool for clients, um, particularly people who are exploring um, different possibilities, different roads they might go in. I call it the two roads exercise. And I offer it to people to say, well, if you were to write as though it were um, a kind of eulogy, an obituary of your life, so you write it in third person, you know, it would be, so write one obituary as though it was your life just went on, it never changed. So it would be, you know, like Rod was a, you know, blah, blah, blah. He did this and Rod did that and da, 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 he lived out. In, and you'd have to fantasize about where it went from here. So you're just looking at the life if none of the conditions changed. And then the, the other road can be then write an obituary, same thing, from particularly from this point, as that would be the life that you would really, your heart would choose for you. No holding back, you know. And to some people, they may be the same. Brilliant. But for many, it's not. And then, you know, so as a coach, that exercise is really good. For some people, it can be so revealing. You know, just, just think, oh, my God, okay, I've got to do something. Okay, so as a coach, what have you got to do? So for us, you know, as our professional conversationalists of change, then it gives us leverage points to, to, to begin a conversation. And in terms of what you, you mentioned about kind of getting that, that sort of bird's eye perspective of like, you know, if you were on a, a mountaintop and looking at mm. the situation, what came to mind to me was, you know, you know, psychedelics. And I was wondering <clears> if you have a strong opinion on, kind of the the usage of of psychedelics to sort of expand the mind and help us sort of see outside of ourselves mm. yeah i i mean um i because of my my commitment to my buddhist practice we we um we we talk about five precepts that we take in there and one of the precepts is that we really guard the mind there's no intoxicants you know so um so I always had that in mind, you know, that's just been the way I've approached my practice is to, to do it un, unaided. And 
this science is so compelling. It's just amazing. And I've, I've worked with clients who've, um, who've used psychedelics and had the most incredible um, trans- transformations. Particularly, I'm thinking of one person in particular who had terrible trauma. I wasn't working on that because I'm a coach, not a therapist. But they had been to a lot of therapists. They had really invested an enormous amount. And they were just pursued by this through their life, um, trapped. And, and yet um, having some properly supervised um, work with psychedelics absolutely granted them a completely new life. So, you know, I, I don't personally uh, take them. I don't, uh, I certainly don't work in that way, but I, I deeply admire people who are able to. And, and in, with now with certain situations, I'm, I can absolutely see the value. It seems as though, you know, psychedelics can help kind of illuminate mm. different, different aspects of our mind, mm. but it's, it's not, you know, showing us anything that isn't already there mm. in the sense that it, it makes sense that you could still sort of access these different sort of states in, in a natural mm. way mm. without needing something exogenous. Mm. Well, that's true. You know, in the, in the, in the teachings of, of, you know, the, the processes of awakening uh, in Buddhist traditions, the, I mean, you have to develop. These aren't things that you can go and, you know, we'll, we'll, you certainly have sometimes have experiences, but it doesn't mean that experience is sustained or consolidated or you're really able to make use of the insight even. So there is a whole process which also includes um, wonderful support from good teachers in that process. So as the insight develops, um, you have someone who's able to support you along that journey so that, um, yeah, so that the, you know, the processes of the mind illuminating or being able to see things of the mind, you can actually make use of that information when you're seeing. You know, I remember um, many years ago, uh, sitting a retreat for the first time with the, the man who's my teacher in, in my tradition. And, and I had one of these experiences, like the, something really happened, you know, and it was real, I, I had no possible, I just couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't, and I, I asked if I could have a meeting with him, and he was great. He said, yeah, explained everything. He went, oh, yeah. Yeah, he said, that's it's interesting when that happens, isn't it? It's just not really what I thought I wanted to hear. You know, I wanted to hear, wow, man, you know, you, you must be a Buddha. You know, like, yeah, you're there already. And, and you know, he didn't, he, he didn't build, make it more than anything, and he didn't make it less than anything. Because he also, you know, he said, yeah, you know, so we don't ignore these things. But, you know, we have to watch out that we don't, we don't make more of it than it really is, you know. Um, and that was really helpful advice for me. I've, I've had similar and other experiences um, many times now. And I see the value. And I also see that they can become traps. You know, they can become little foxholes that keep me stuck if I just try and find those experiences. Rod, so something from my understanding of, you know, some, some Buddhist teachings that, you know, there's the idea of sort of, uh, you know, non-attachment or, Mm. and, and sort of, I wanted to ask you how, how you sort of uh, balance that whole side of things with, I'm assuming a lot of the, the clients that you're coaching are very much, kind of these high achiever, you know, type A sort of personalities who, who are definitely like striving for lots of kind of external things in this world. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you sort of reconcile those maybe two kind of different worlds? Yeah, I, you know, my perspective is um, as we develop um, ourselves as human beings, as facilitators, as, you know, modern day shamans, whatever we want to call coaches, you know, there's many times, many different ways people talk about them. But is this kind of ability to hold something that seems paradoxical in the first place, you know, so that, 
So I live with that awareness, you know, that for me to, you know, put place my and trying to grip onto things that uh, will never last, you know, as my source of happiness and satisfaction was tragic, really. You know, I'm bound to be disappointed again and again and again. Um, and so that it's a truth. It's just, it's just how it is. But working with clients who may be in that mode, um, I don't try and tell them that. You know, that's not, that's not how insight works. You know, it has to develop. So I just meet them where they're at. You know, I, I, I might ask questions that help them explore a little deeper into, you know, what, what's ultimately, what, what, what is it that they're really aiming to get here? And that hopefully, little by little, you know, the sun starts to come up and they, they start to see, you know, where, where, where their lives truly are more satisfying and when they're not. But, you know, as a coach, I also, you know, not everything is about these deep spiritual truths for me at all. You know, there's, a lot of coaching can be very pragmatic and that's fine. That's just, you know, I'm serving the client. I'm not trying to um, work some fabulous mystical hocus pocus in the background, you know, and get them into something that I think is more appropriate for them. I, I never do that. I just hold the possibility that what's really going on for them is something more existential even if all we're working on is the mundane and the pragmatic. And do you sort of uh, personalize the coach? Like does, does your coaching approach change? Like do you evaluate kind of who the client is and then figure out what might be tailored best to, to suit who they are as, or, or is your coaching, is it, is it the same regardless of the client? Uh, absolutely yes. I, I always tailor. You know, I'm all as I said. I'm, I'm meeting the client where and who they are in this moment, and and so you know, a lot of my questions will be feeling around and in you know what are the what are the modes that are more accessible for them? You know, how do they operate? Like some people, for example, are really verbal processes. So we just let you know let them go. I've just worked with someone who was like that. You know, they they spoke for thirty three minutes. And it was really important for them to do that. They processed a lot, you know. So my task there was just holding space. And then and, and they, they walked away with something. We really only probably coached for about 15 minutes, but they walked away with going, this is a gem, you know, something I hadn't seen. Um, so I'm always meeting the client where they are, um, realizing that we all have different ways of processing. And, and that's what I think with coaches as well, you know, we're talking about a lot of these skills of depth and everything, but I think we really need not just depth, but breadth. You know, we need to have a lot of ways of working with people so, so we can meet them where they are and serve them. You know, I'm not, they're not serving me. Um, that's, I'm always serving the client. Awesome. Hmm. Well, Rod, if, if people were, uh, you know, if listeners were interested in getting involved hmm. with a coach, uh, what sort of would you recommend as far as, you know, there, there being so many different, you know, probably styles of coaching and, mm. and different approaches, mm. uh, different people, different credentials, what, what mm. would you, what advice would you give to someone who's looking to step into this world of coaching? The, the absolute number one thing I would say to people is find uh, either that your coach has what we call a credential, which means that they're, their training and uh, uh, their training was recognised by one of the world bodies that that have um, have standards uh, have consistent standards of coaching, and that if they have a credential, it means that they've they've also taken that a step further and they proved that level of training and their standards to one of these international bodies, and they have their credential. There's just no getting around that. You know, the, the world of coaching is a wild west. There's a squillion coach training programs out there. Many of them have no formal accreditation. And, you know, it's, it's buyer's luck with that. You don't know what the, the, what the methodologies are. You don't know what the standards are. But if you have uh, a recognized body who's, who's accredited the program and has credentialed the coach, and those bodies would be like the International Coaching Federation, the ICF, um, the Association for Coaching in England. And th there are some others, but they're two key ones that I know and I've been members of. Great, great. Mm. Uh, well, I'll put a link to those in the show notes. And uh, Rod, where, if people want to uh, get in touch with you or just find out more about your work, 
where would you direct them to? Probably the best place to go is to Interactualizer. And so it's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's just Interactualizer. Um, and so that's just www.interactualizer.com. Awesome. Well, Rod, I, I really wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks very much, mate. Me too. It's been, thank you for such great questions. I've loved the inquiry. Absolutely. Any last words before we wrap up? Uh, any last words? No, I think the words have all been spoken. Yeah. Thank great. you for the opportunity. Absolutely. All right. Welcome to a new segment called Toby's Takeaways, where I break down a few of the most important things that I gained from the interview that you just listened to. So I was really impressed by Rod Francis and what he had to say. First takeaway I had was that Rod's ability to integrate so many dis different disciplines from a wide array of research into his coaching practice is really remarkable, drawing from meditation, cognitive science, and so many other fields is really astonishing. Next takeaway is that the body has its own form of intelligence that is different from what we generally think of as the mind, although it can be a bit more difficult to tap into. This is where Rod described the importance of embodiment practices and how they come into play. My last takeaway is that the stories we tell ourselves and the language we use is so powerful. Becoming aware of this inner dialogue is often the first step in learning to change unhealthy scripts. If you guys enjoyed the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel where Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. Also go ahead and subscribe on whatever audio platform that you listen to the podcast on, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other ones. We are on all major platforms. Also, I'd love to hear from you guys if you, you guys have any questions, comments, uh, people that you want to see on the show, please feel free to DM me at Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro on Instagram. You can tweet me at Wetsuit Podcast on Twitter or email me at Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you guys.